0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 89th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that hasn't updated its logo in 89 episodes, or even bothered to make one, which, you know, maybe we should get on top of if we're gonna point fingers. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation.
1: A quick message from our sponsor, face face-to-face 2 face Games. FaceToFaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product. we shipping them both the U.S. and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck
0: or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTGCritic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as usual, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at WizardBumpin, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering.
1: Good evening, everybody. Looking forward to episode 89, chock full of great information. Uh, Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby.
0: All right, what's on the agenda this
1: week, Travis? James, this week we have... An episode in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We'll be looking at the cards that have changed the most in price uh, this week. Segment two is our cards to watch, where we will be discussing uh, the cards that James and I think could rise in price in the future. Segment three is our metagame week on review. This week, we'll be looking at the world, champ, world champs, world championship, 27, 2017 world championship. It's all standard. And uh, segment four, our topic of the week, Wizards released a new magic Um, logo uh, that they have uh, rolled out earlier this week. It is not uh, replacing the card backs. I'm going to highlight that right now, but it is a, um, an opportunity to discuss magic branding and some of the opportunities within, within there. So we'll, we'll we'll finish up the week with that. You know what I'm realizing here, James, we should be saying the date that we record these episodes
0: when we do them, (laughs) that would be a really good idea. I mean, that's usually posted in the show notes and, uh, included in the podcast postings themselves but sure the record date is october 12th 2017 yeah because
1: you know what it is we write it down here too so i can keep track when i go back later but i'm just thinking i'm like somebody might be curious about where this took place in time and if they don't find it through like our normal sources it might not be obvious We're gonna have to think about that okay let's start segment one our top movers first card of the week vraska's contempt out of ixalan both foils and non-foils have moved this week. Looking at the fo- non foil specifically, just about a double up, about 5 to $10. Uh, Rosso's Contempt is the contemporary of uh, Hero's Downfall. Um, it is one more mana, but you get to exile your target rather than destroy it. And it gains you two life, which may or may not matter. Um, also an instant, very important. I wasn't sure if this card was going to be good enough to make it in standard uh, at four mana. Three mana for Hero's Downfall all, all had already seemed like it might have been a little bit much, but obviously that ended up not being the case. Vraska's attempt was pushing that even a little further. The extra mana certainly not worth the two life that you gain from it. But it turns out this is the right metagame for it, with Hazoret being such an important card as well as a Scarab God. Vraska's C- Contempt has turned into the most reasonable way to answer both of those and still does use some duty in hitting other threats um, and uh, that little bit of life gain pad. So I think, um, I think I'm, I'm absolutely willing to sell here. If I own any copies, I'm not looking to hold on to these. I also think Roscoe's Contempt is an interesting example of how metagames can really shape the price of cards. Roscoe's Contempt could have been 99 cents. If there were not two gods that were like the two most important cards in the format, um, it would not have seen the level play it needed uh, and therefore wouldn't hold that price. So, you know, the next time we see a card of this stripe roll around, if it looks like it fills a similar role, keep in mind that if the metagame isn't there to support it, then suddenly it's a much, much worse card. It's much less played, um, which can result in some real differences in financial financial perspective.
0: Yeah, indeed. This is a matter where being able to exile um, finishers is of critical importance. And the other thing that this is highlighting is that there, are, this is one of several rares that have um, touched or are approaching the $10 mark, which is uh, something we haven't seen in a while. Um, ever since the advent of expeditions and masterpieces, um, sets that included them have had trouble um, getting rares much past the $5 mark. And we predicted, uh, once we knew there was no masterpieces in the set, that that might be challenged, and indeed it has been. Um, also probably doesn't hurt that the land cycle is not particularly important um, in modern, for instance, which um, makes some room um, for some price jumps, as well as the fact that most of the mythics in the set are of uh, a relevant power level for standard. Um, this is a set that is very much about the standard playable rares, um, even without much in the way of uh, cards that are going to be heavily played in Modern, we're still seeing these rare spike um, just on the back of people getting back into Standard, about Standard looking relatively healthy, um, having a relatively diverse metagame. Um, But it's still interesting to note that the EV of this set is actually below Kaladesh's, um, despite all of that. Um, lar- by a few dollars, actually. And largely, I think, because um, relatively few of the cards in the set are in demand. So we have like five or six cards that show up in, in decks in this standard meta, but most of this meta is still um, structured around cards from last year. Now, I mean, we've talked before about how the tribal, uh, the tribes in this set um, have not been fully flushed out yet. You've mentioned a couple times uh, here and on your other cast that, you know, once we get the tribes... Um, uh, fleshed out come uh, what is it? Explorers of Ixalan, or is it Rivals yep. of? Explorers is the new product. It's the like new games. board game. So Rivals yeah. must be the the set that's yes. coming out in the winter. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know I think that the blanks will be filled, and maybe you see a vampire deck emerge or something. Um, but for now, this is still mostly an energy uh, centric format, and, and as a result, um, the The price of most cards in the set is relatively suppressed because there's no strong demand for them because they don't fit into the energy puzzle. Um, But the five or six cards that are especially good, things like Vraska's Contempt, Hostage Taker, um, etc., have, you know, therefore have room to explode because there's not much else that's eating up value yeah that's that's a lot of background for brosco's
1: contempt but yeah yes i i agree with you um i wonder how much the uh the kaladesh ev is buoyed by the inventions too um you know it should all
0: even out in the long run but well because because the ev calcs on most of the sites that are calculating that don't include the inventions it doesn't even factor in that they they hold that um entirely separate in those calculations so hmm. they're treated like their own sets, right? So EV of Kaladesh is, in fact, just looking at the core cards of the set, still higher than um, the EV of Ixalan for the reasons we just discussed.
1: Well, there you go. If you are have the option of prize packs from your
0: local store, you know which set to choose. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things there is that some of these cards that you think might be in as high demand as things like Contempt and Hostage Shaker cards that you think are good that the power level is high for standard but doesn't have a home um, are still cards from a set that has room to pop so if some of those cards are uh, these cards that are currently popped are not going to be as good in the meta six months from now there are going to be opportunities to pick up you know dollar two dollar rares and have them turn into ten dollar cards Mm-hmm. yep okay uh what is our next card for this week Original printing of Nickel Bolas in Legends has moved from $27 to $55, uh, with Bolas being in the headlines, as it were, all year through the Amonkhet block. Um, not particularly surprising that collectors have been tracking these downs, uh, down as Legends has been one of the sets that has been relentlessly targeted um, throughout the year by speculators. Um so pretty much a double up. This is the original printing of a, you know, a, a core character in the game whose story has not fully played out yet. I think we're still a few sets away from seeing anybody defeat this guy. Um and as a result, uh you know, collectors are still going to be on the hunt um, for the very first printing of the character.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's a cool-looking card, although the card's not really that great. So it's more of a collector's item than anything, although it's still playable in EDH, I suppose. Um, next on our list is search for Ascanta also from Ixalon again, non-foils and foils looking at the non-foils started the week at around like six, seven bucks. We're up to about almost 15 now. Um, search for Ascanta has quietly become one of the best cards from that set. You know, Vros's attempt and I think search for Ascanta were the two like breakout cards from worlds, uh, this past weekend, um search is being played in basically every deck that makes blue mana i suppose maybe not team or energy i guess but like everybody else in the format is playing it usually not as a four of you're not seeing it as a full set that often but still uh definitely a two or three in most of them uh it's also nice that you can double up on them as well so you can play one flip it and then the other one can still keep going because the triggers in may i <coughs> excuse me i really liked this card initially i wanted to pick the put this on like my um, cards to watch type of thing on uh, either one of my articles or this podcast, but it was never cheaper than five dollars. So I couldn't get in and now it's too late. Uh, but so there you go again. Another was another standard card that if I had, I would definitely be dumping them. Um, even though it's clearly good, it's unlikely you'll get too much more out of it.
0: I had every intention of purchasing foils of this for eventual modern play, but the hype has gotten out in front of me here, and there are only 13 listings on TCG Player, and the lowest priced copy with shipping is 30 bucks. Whew. That's a lot. I, indeed it is. I think that price has got to float back down. Um, I suspect... The thing about this is that this is a one or a two of in both formats, right? Like We haven't seen a deck yet that wants to run the full four. Um, the blue-black deck's Um, love this card to be able to drive home answer after answer. They survive the early game, um, go to town um, on the back of Search for Azkanta, finding a Scarab God and Torrential Gear Hulks to kind of like put the value engine in control. And we saw on camera at Worlds um, that, you know, you didn't even have to beat people with the blue-black decks. You just had to establish control to the point where they could see the writing on the wall. And then experienced pros that understand how control decks play out once they establish control would just fold and move on to the next game. Because there's no point in dragging things out for 10, 15 turns and burning the clock when you're not really going to have a chance to reestablish um, you know, control of the board when you're drawing a single card per turn. And Search for Kanta is letting them find exactly what they need. The interesting thing here is I think a lot of people when they first read this card assumed it only gets instants and sorceries when it flips. And it certainly doesn't get lands or creatures, but it can still get any non-creature card that's not a land. So it can still get enchantments, it can still get planeswalkers, instants, or sorceries. And that leaves it, you know, wider open to do interesting things in other formats like EDH and modern. Um, And I still feel pretty confident that down the road we're going to see a modern deck that wants four of them. Um despite it being legendary because of the the nice tension where the flipped one can coexist with the unflipped one. Um Sam Black was running three copies in his standard deck instead of two. There seemed to be some disagreement as to whether it's two or three sometimes in standard. Um so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I'm certainly disappointed that I can't get my hands on any foils at a super attractive price. hmm Yeah, yeah. Being able to fetch up nickel
1: balls is interesting. Uh If you're in a Grixis strategy, just have one of, and then have your four enchantments, three enchantments be able to tutor for it. It's convenient.
0: Yep. Uh, What's next? All right. So next on our list, uh, we're going from $185 to $400. $215 increase, 116%. This is a reserved list foil, an ultra broken card um, that should never have been printed. Uh, no copies available in theory online. Um, your good buddy over on cartel aristocrats says he's got a ton of them sitting around. Um, good for him. That's a pretty sweet play. If you can actually find enough buyers to unload to the question there is how many buyers per year can you find for a $400 foil? Right. That's the type of card that you could sell. You
1: could, even if you sell them at 400, you're looking at what one, A year maybe maybe two or three a year if you're really lucky seems not terribly likely but hey you
0: never know um i mean it depends on the quality i mean the quality of your funnel i mean um, jeremy has access to stores to push through so his funnel is wider than you know mine or yours the other thing is that um you know if he got in I don't know what his entry point was but let's say it was 100 to 150 if it's in theory a 400 card but it's going to backslide to 350 he could still choose to get out in the 250 to 300 range and and you know with a a bargain quote unquote that good um versus market price might be able to unload faster
1: that's true that's true you could uh you might be able to ditch these to
0: buy list at 250 and still come out quite ahead Yeah, especially if you're going to take the the trade-in bonus and upgrade into a Mox or a Lotus or something. Yeah, I mean, you'd be able to get a couple at that rate. Um, Okay, I'm going to do
1: the next one, which is Aether Flash from 7th edition. Looking at the foil copies this week, uh, 6 to 13. This has already been covered two episodes ago, three three episodes ago in show 86. um, When it kind of moved at that time, supply was very low uh i it was it was out of stock during that episode or you know one had been relisted so this must have been somebody picked the one up and is now relisted it at 13 like there's not there's no more copies now than there were before um so again not nothing really to see here just a really low supply foil seventh edition card that
0: bounced a little bit yeah there's enough people out there that are that target seventh foils when they get especially low that no one should be surprised by this and again this is a relatively niche product in the grand scheme of things the seventh foils are a foil collector's thing more than they are a magic collector's thing and so um you know it's not something you ever want to be super deep on and when you get an opportunity to unload or trade out it's usually a good a good exit Mm -hmm. what's next Fiery Justice from Time Spiral, the foils moving from $3 to $7, uh, apparently on low supply. Um, you s- occasionally see this show up as like a rogue card in in modern. Um, uh, I can't remember what the circumstances are, but let's just put it this way. The, the supply in this was low enough that it didn't take much of a swipe to clear out the rest. Well, you've got um, Kabu Predator, which gains 1-1 counter every
1: time your opponent gains life. So you cast fiery justice to deal five damage to a creature uh, or split however you want. It's actually extremely efficient in that regards. Your opponent gains five life, but your cover predator gets five counters. So you wipe out all of the blo- all of their blockers. And then even though they gain the life, you put that many counters on your predator, which then takes that much more life off when they attack through because they have nothing left to block with. Um, so yeah, it's got some great little synergies there, uh, although certainly not enough to keep it Anywhere near a recognizable component of modern.
0: So apparently there is a Kiki core deck that went five, two in a modern challenge on September 16th. That was running four copies of this card in the main. Um, This is a quarter calling Eldritch evolution Kiki build. And I'm assuming that they are using this targeting death shadow. Um, Because you can make the opponent gain five life, shrink their shadow and then deal five damage amongst whatever you need to to kind of try to clear up the board. So if it was like a 10-10 shadow, you could kill it with a justice.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I suppose if your deck is already planning on comboing your opponent out for the most case, or for the most of the time, then the five life doesn't matter. And also being able to kill that shadows pretty easily makes that uh, some amusing
0: tech as well. I can see it. All right, so moving right along, uh, we've got Hunting Grounds from Judgment. The foil's moving from $9 to $25. This is a good EDH foil with really low supply from a set way, way back down the road. Um, not tremendously surprising to see it uh, make a move at you know some random juncture.
1: Yep, there are two foil copies at 30 on 2CG player right now. Uh, it's a cool card. I think a lot of people probably don't know it exists. One of those, it should see more play. It would see more play if people knew it was there type of thing um after that is long tusk Cub from kaladesh uh looking at the foil supposedly from two and change to 750 but i'm looking right now there's a foil available for two dollars and 18 cents but there's only the one and then you jump back up to seven dollars the market price is still 250 though so somebody tried to push this up into the seven dollar range a couple people gathered together but I don't think it's going to take uh, we're talking about a standard uncommon foil only playing played in basically one standard archetype or, you know, you, you can lump teamer and saltite energy together but the energy decks. Really um, I, a foil uncommons that are only played in standard is
0: not any no. think of someplace further from where I want to be. I was actually working on an article that tried to rank types of specs, and this would be well near the bottom of the list. Yeah, that is that is pretty rough. Um, All right, so Quicksilver Fountain foils at a uh, or non foils at a Meriden moving from a dollar to five dollars. Uh, somebody bought out the foils apparently. The non foils made a move as well. Is that the deal? Uh,
1: yeah, I guess. Oh wait, oh we have this marked as no. That's wait. Let me double check here. I uh, our spreadsheet is a little bit of a disconnect. I think it's supposed to be only the foils. So there is. So it was the
0: foils that moved from a dollar to five.
1: Yeah, because there's only two foils available, uh, with a low of eighteen dollars, and the market price is three bucks. But non-foil near mint, there are still several copies available. I guess, yeah. So
0: it was the non-foil. So or it was the foil? So Quicksilver. The foils jumped from a dollar five got it so the Quicksilver fountain uh, is like the blue mages blood moon um, slowly turns uh, all the lands and play into islands I've seen it come into the sideboard in some games uh, of modern from blue based control decks um, Jeskai builds and so forth Um and have never been super uh, excited about how it plays out because it's strongly dependent on what's across the table from you um, and how much they want or, or fear having only access to blue mana. Um, I've also seen it in some Tezzeret-based builds in Modern. Um, some total, this is not a card that's likely to get reprinted, but also not likely to post up shop as a format staple. So I think if you're playing a deck where you know that um, at your local metagame, this thing does work and you were planning on someday getting a foil, maybe you don't want to hold back, but otherwise it's just the kind of card you want to steer clear of. Yeah. Not,
1: uh, can't imagine this ever becoming a thing. um, Okay, we will finish off the week with Charmed Griffin from Mercadian Masks. The foils jumped from like 50 $0.75 cents up to $5. But I can't fathom who or why. Um, the only thing that this could possibly be is just ultra low supply, and somebody decided they were going to uh, take a shot. I mean, it's just it's incomprehensible. The card is in 80 EDH decks, eight zero. 0 I mean, that is... This is out of a pool of two hundred twenty thousand decks, so eighty is nothing. It's a it's a three three flyer that when it comes into play, each other player may put an artifact or enchantment from their hand into play. So it's not even like when it comes into play, each player does it so that you can like drop in your omniscience and screw people. It's ju- you get a, you get a average rate flyer, and your opponents get to blow you out. So I I, I don't know, man. I stay away. <laughs> just 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 ignore this yep. entirely.
0: Yep. Skip. Move. Right along. Let's jump into segment two our cards to watch. These are the cards that we think might be good pickups for you guys in the very near future. Um, I'm going to start off with a card that showed up as a four of in recent iterations of Todd Stevens' Green White Value Town builds and Modern. The card is also in 12,000 EDH decks. It was held back a little bit by a promo printing that showed up in uh, one of the supplemental products from the year where it was relevant. Um, and the card I'm talking about is Courser of Krufix. I'm talking about original pack foils with a mid to long timeline confidence level of say 7 out of 10. This was a Born of the Gods rare. Foils are currently available around $7. I think you're going to get a shot at getting out on these north of 15 um, before you get uh, have any threat of a reprint, which I would expect to see maybe in Modern Masters 2019 or something if it continues to be relevant in the format. That's a, a lot of decks. I didn't realize Courser was in that many. I mean, it makes sense, but... Whew, that's a bunch.
1: Um, Born of the God was really lowly, o- really barely open to. I played uh, during Theros block and Journey and Born. There was not a lot of copies on the market. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that, especially those old foils. Those enchantment creatures are really cool in foil too.
0: Well, I mean, part of this is that Ramanap Excavator has made its way into that deck. Um, so, in, Between that and Crucible of Worlds, there's a whole like strip mining um, process that's going on. Um, trying to uh, control the the land resources of the opponent, and um, you know this deck also runs Knight of the Reliquary, right? So Corsair helps you kind of draw through resources more quickly, and and gives you life when you put lands into play, which makes your knights bigger. Um, and then if those lands happen to be strip mine effects, then Ramanak Excavator and Crucible are bringing them back. And then you do it again, gaining more life and making the night bigger again. It's a nice little sequence if you can survive to that mid- mid-range portion of the game. That is,
1: uh, yeah, that is interesting. I like that. It sounds like a fun deck to play, just strip mining the heck out of your opponents in modern. Yeah. Um, all right, my first card this week is uh, is one that I had wanted to wait longer to talk about, but I, I'm kind of having my being forced to the point here is Anointed Procession. This is the Amonkhet White Enchantment. It's the white doubling season. It doubles the number of tokens you put into play. Uh, it's like six or seven bucks right now, but I actually think there is still room for that to grow. First of all, it's hugely popular in EDH uh, and will continue to be so. Again, it's the white doubling season. And this tokens deck has been doing pretty well online, um, but I don't know if it's really invaded the paper world yet, uh, especially without having shown up at Worlds at all. So I think what we've got here is modern Moto has kind of figured out that there's this token stack which is pretty reasonable, but it hasn't spread to the paper world yet. And we might see that at the Pro Tour in I don't know whatever it is a couple of weeks or possibly the Star City Opens that we have coming up. And given that this is like six or seven dollars, and that's I believe that's heavily predicated on casual and EDH demand already. Um, you know the broader standard market realizing this card is part is like the engine or the the payoff in a standard tokens list like what could be a tier list could really push this up over the top um meanwhile you can also find foils at like 10 which i which is probably also pretty reasonable again white doubling season um so your payoff on those probably isn't going to be as fast as the non-foils but i do think that there it's a a very healthy mid mid to well it it would be a long-term return but probably like a year-ish maybe three years um before you really take off with those
0: yeah, I mean, the foils have been on my radar right since it was announced cuz it's not really doubling seasons as much as it's parallel lives, right? right? But in the decks that want this effect um, that care about doubling up on tokens, having access to the same spell twice is twice as good. I mean, that's the lack of consistency is what hurts decks especially in casual circles. So being able to, you know, reliably get this effect on the table lets you build around that effect much more uh, reliably. There are very few foils left. Uh, in that $10 range. And I think I'll be picking up a few this evening after we're done um, because I love it at 10. I think it hits 20 or 30 before we see a reprint in foil. One of the, the trends we see continuously with all of these reprints for EDH is that they're not foil. <laughs> and we're. I've seen tons of evidence this year that EDH players are willing to go deep on foils. Um, you know, A big part of us being able to arbitrage masterpieces ahead of the curve, um, from Europe this year was that um, people underestimated the demand for the EDH-relevant foils from that subset. And, um, you know, a ton of the stuff that I sell on eBay week after week is EDH foils. So, I mean, I, I know that the demand is there and if I've got to choose between, you know, picking up non-foils or foils of something from EDH that's, you know, a mo- uh, a card from the last few years. You're much more likely to see the foils dry up within a two-year time horizon than you are to see the non foils dry up in a five year time horizon, especially if the card is decent in standard or something, and then gets dumped back into the marketplace when people are done with it.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah. I guess I guess you're right. More parallel lives in doubling season, but still really good. And um, you know, keep in mind too that this has a uh, some uh, some wider application, I suppose, than you might realize because it's all tokens th- that you create. So in standard, that doubles your treasure tokens. Ah, so right. You got- You've got an opportunity for some some fun stuff there. And it's also an engine with um uh, shoot, what is it? Hidden stockpile on its own. Cause hidden stockpile, like you pay a mono sack a permanent or a creature or something, and you get the scribe, believe, and gain a life or whatever. But the point is you basically get to you keep increasing the number of tokens you like you basically make a token every single turn, including your opponent's turns, while getting other upside because uh, the doubling you know, kind of allows you to, uh, to build that, that bank of tokens up, which is, uh, interesting because I actually came across a token deck the other day. They had like three deck, three cards that made tokens and I'm like, where the heck well, this deck runs four anointed procession, and there's like so little in the deck to actually make tokens, and then I realize a hidden stockpile like goes off with it essentially. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. So the engine and the doubler kind of like work on their own. So uh a curious yeah. a, a, a curious interactions here that could have additional implications in standard.
0: Yep, I like it. Um I like the not the foils a lot more than I like the non-foils. Um the uh just because the supply is so much lower and because the EDH demand makes it a reliable pick.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I'm talking about the non-foils, it's like I'm not necessarily you guys rush out and encouraging you guys to rush out and buy these. I don't think that that's necessarily the best path, but, um, you know, trading for them at your local store at, at retail at, you know, the seven bucks, I think, is a completely reasonable thing to do because, you know, there's going to be people in your store that are going to want to play tokens when it shows up at the Pro Tour and you'll be able to trade them out at, at double their what you got them for.
0: Yeah, I think I started buying these around the first time I called this on cast back on episode 67, which was like early May of this year, um, when they were at $6 for the foils. Um, and my target was $15 um, for the exit. So I think like, you know, we're we're in sync here.
1: Okay, cool. All
0: right. So my next pick for the week is uh, another important foil from a recent set, Inventor's Fair foils um, from Kaladesh. I have a confidence level of eight on these for the mid to long term. Um... This is a foil that you can currently pick up in and around the like, $5, $6, $7 range, depending on where you're sourcing them from. And is another foil that I think is going to end up in the $15 to $20 range before it sees any kind of a reprint. Held back a little bit by its legendary land status, um, making it not so exciting to have multiple copies of in Dex and Modern, or, and in EDH that's not really relevant. But the combination of demand from both those formats um, for the foils Uh, because it gets played in like 11,000 decks on edhrec.com, and it's also played in Lantern Control and Modern, and occasionally you see it in Affinity Builds as well. Um, It gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling about this, being able to hit the the target exit point within, say, a year, maybe two years tops.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I would never have guessed that it's in 11,000 decks, but that's quite a a healthy number. Um, I'm sure it's more for the tutoring for an artifact rather than Uh, the one life per upkeep. Um, But you know, if you have, you can use this to tutor for crucible worlds and then put crucible worlds in play and uh, return adventures fair. So that's a cute little loop. Um, But yeah, five or six bucks for a foil land. That's in 11,000 EDH decks that we're unlikely to see in foil again for a very long time. I'm, I'm completely on board with that because that, you know, it's, that's very useful and, and people are always going to be playing EDH decks that want artifacts
0: well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. This is about the four-mana colorless tutor effect in mm-hmm. a deck like Brea, where you've got a whole bunch of combos stashed in there and you want to go get the appropriate piece. Um, a land is a, is a tough tutor. You can't counter it. Um, and land destruction is much more rare than, say, creature destruction in EDH. Um, or, and uh, as a result um inventors fair is going to have open-ended synergy with you know artifact centric commanders every time they print a new artifact centric commander this slots right in because um it's colorless and so it, you know it fits in no matter what color the the relevant commander is and you know all of that adds up to a card you're going to want to be holding some copies of
1: okay um my second pick for the week is uh hedron archive this is the artifact from Battle for Zendikar. It's somewhere between Mind Stone and, oh, shoot, what was the big one? Hedron. Dreamstone Hedron, I think, is the other one. Um, Hedron Archive, the one I'm talking about, is four mana, taps for double colorless, um, and you can pay to sack it, and draw two. So a pretty good middle ground. Uh, I, I think I like, you know, if you're an EDH player, this one might be one of the might be the best of the trilogy simply because Mindstone is kind of small and it takes up a slot in your deck, and you're not sure it has enough of an impact to to be worth it. Whereas uh, Dreamstone Hedron, six mana can be a little expensive if you're trying to do other things, but at four archive slots in pretty nicely. Shows up in 16,000 EDH decks, so it's really highly played, uh, more so than I would have guessed. Um, currently there's only two printings. There is the battle for Zendikar printing and the commander 2017 printing. They will print this card into the ground. Um, you know, it will show up as the, a lot of the other artifacts have where it's just in every single commander set at uncommon. but none of those show up in foil, uh, foil supply. Uh, I mean, it's there, but it's not heavy. Looks like there's 23 vendors right now. Um, and only like two of them have double digit art, uh, stock. Most don't. So, you know, you can pick these up at like 4 to $5 right now. And I think you can kind of hang on to these for a while and you'll see them hit 10 or $15 in maybe a year or two. Um, so again, another not particularly sexy, a uh, little bit longer timeline, but a pretty easy card to just pick up and stash away and, and find is worth a good chunk of change down the road. Um, you know, and if you're, if I haven't convinced you, just remember Burnished Heart. Uh, burnished, yeah, burnished heart, which is <laughs> yeah. a uncommon from Theros. It's a three mana two two that you can sack to uh, put two lands into play tapped, and those foils are also like seven or eight dollars and spiked a little while ago. And I don't think I think those are going to spike again, actually. So, uh, pretty much the, the same thing.
0: Yeah. So, how how deep did you say the foil supply was right now? Uh,
1: so there are wait. 23 vendors and I think two guys have more than 10. Most people have one to two. So there's like maybe 50 total copies on TCG player right now.
0: So, I mean, I said earlier this week on Twitter that um, if Wizards wanted to take a swipe at MTG Finance and get people in EDH, uh, giving them the big thumbs up, they would replace the FTV product line, which I seems just... Sillier and sillier in the context of all the other supplemental products that make it kind of unnecessary, um, and replace it with a command uh, an annual commander's arsenal at the other half of the year, like the other end of the year from the commander um, pre-constructed decks release. So if they're going to be in the fall, do this in the spring um, and put out like fifteen relevant commander foils. Um, that would put the fear of God in my spec portfolio right now because i reorganized over the weekend and i've got tons of edh foils sitting around that i'm super comfortable holding for the like short to midterm because i know that every time they release most of the time unless it's in a standard legal set these commander foils don't show up as foils Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some small portion of them are showing up in the master sets, and some of them occasionally show up as, as a reprint in standard. But most EDH foils have been relatively safe places to be. And in some of the more exciting, like the more high demand foils like Cyclonic Rift, I mean, that just got reprinted in a master set in the spring, it's already making us money now. Like, uh, uh, barely six months has passed and those foils have already, um, you know, made good progress towards profitability. So, you know, anything like this, where if you were talking about the non-foils, I'd say heck no, because it's going to show up in a commander deck this, this year, the next year, the year after. Um, but the foils, who knows how long it's going to take for Hedron Archive to show up as a foil. That could be Modern Masters 2019. It could be six, seven years from now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm anticipating. A million non-foil printings and one foil printing. Um, and, you know, at, at 16,000 in gaining, uh, you know, it's it's essentially the second, another Gilded Lotus, you know.
0: Agreed. All right, what do you got for us? All right, so my last pick of the week is uh, another Kalendish, uh artifact-related foil um, that I think people are going to want to have in their portfolios. This is Re- Re- Etherflux Reservoir. Um, the foils are currently in at around five dollars. Some of, you can get them actually as cheap as three or four on eBay right now. And I think this is going to be another $15 foil before it ever gets a shot at being reprinted. It's a weird artifact combo card that basically wins you the game as an alternate win condition on the back of having, what, 50 life?
1: Um, 40 or 50, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's 50 life. You you give up 50 life, and that lets you kill somebody, right?
1: Or is it you pay
0: 20 life and deal 20? No, you pay 50 and deal 50. 50 So in EDH, it's not an instant kill against the whole board, but... Um, it's whenever you cast a spell, you gain a life for each spell, you cast this turn. So you combo off in storm type fashion, and then you pay 50 to knock somebody out. Um, so it's already in 8,300, uh, EDH decks. And, you know, because it's colorless, because it's combo tastic, because it fits slots into, um, a whole bunch of different, uh, artifact decks that can cycle through a bunch of artifact spells in the same turn. You know, leverage uh, infinite mana or what have you to go off. You could potentially gain infinite life and then use that to kill the board.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, and yeah, there's plenty of other things you could combo with this too that would increase the life that you're gaining as you're going off. That would allow you to get up to 250 life. I have a friend with a a Loro deck that hits like 150, and he's not even trying to abuse Ether Flux Reservoir. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, this is a really cool card um a surprising number of edh decks as well like i would have never guessed 8300 i mean like who that an that is an odd card to use i guess but i suppose again if you're playing something like a laura or wherever else you can just shove it in there because you're not looking to combo off you just want the ability to i don't know super not wait not super sin soul bomb something there's some dragon ball z reference i feel like that makes sense here where you use your own life force to kill your opponent. But I mean, yes, given that fact and the fact that life gain has always been popular in EDH is sort of a sub theme. um, The foils again on this look pretty, pretty solid for sure. Uh, And your timeline is correct too. You know, even 2019 is probably too early to see a foil reprint. I I don't even know. I don't even know where you would see this reprinted in foil. Honestly, I mean, putting this in a master set is really odd. Uh you're not really gonna see it in standard again, so what does that leave?
0: Yep. It, it I think it's a foil that's going to survive out there in the wild for quite some time, and that means that the 15 could be conservative. It could end up being a 20, 25, $30 foil um with relative ease just on the back of exploding ADH demand.
1: Yep. Cool. Cool beans. Okay, let's look at uh segment three, our metagame week can review the world championships. Uh the story of this event was certainly Vraska's contempt and search for uh on, wait I want as, say, as canta, i want to say like on uh, the, what's that one fabric that the people put in their car the really high-end one uh, on kantara whatever uh <laughs> contempt and search the for people
0: sc- you mean you mean guys who are driving around in fancy porsche
1: uh no it's no not that one it's uh like lamborghinis and stuff like that on mm-hmm.
0: car well oh this is gonna drive me nuts. we we're sounding even more relatable talking about interiors for Lamborghini. <laughs> I
1: only know of it. I don't know a Lamborghini. All right, let's be clear. Um Those two cards were the breakout cards of the event. Scare of really would have been a breakout card if we didn't already know how good it was. Um Interestingly, enough, no hostage taker anywhere, even though like half the decks were playing blue, black. Uh, were you surprised by a lack of hostage taker here?
0: yeah it, that was interesting. Um, the thing to keep in mind about the world's meta is that this is 24 of the best players in the world. The meta is utterly different than at your local F even utterly different than a Grand Prix. When these guys step up to a Grand Prix, they know that they need to for the first day, they gotta plow through a bunch of randomness. And so they have to have their deck tuned to beat you know net decking dot meta. And then get through that and target the people that were next leveling the event. And so in, that usually comes out in the sideboard plan or, you know, how you plan to attack the mirror or what have you. Um, but this particular tournament is, is kind of a poor representation of where um, the meta is headed for standard on the whole. Um, because though some cool tech emerges, and, and we've certainly, we're going to talk about some of that in a minute. Um, it's also, you know, a, a meta where they know they're playing the best. And, and that they're only playing eight rounds total of standard. Um, and so they're attacking the meta for that specific day. You know, a week later at a GP or something, they might bring a completely different deck or a completely different configuration um, because they're going to be playing completely different field of, of players across the table from them. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that if you looked at the viewing numbers for the Worlds, which should be the penultimate tournament of the year, It was actually less than your average pro tour. And for large portions of the weekend, it was far below what, you know, name your favorite magic YouTube channel gets in a given week. And this underscores for me that competitive magic no longer occupies the top tier um, of magic uh, media and news that it did for many, many, many years. I think I think we have successfully transitioned into a new era of magic where, you know, casual and fun magic rules where competitive is still a thing, but that the vast majority of consumption of uh, magic content happens uh, over on channels like, you know, Against the Odds from MTG Goldfish or you know, alpha investments, people getting bad advice on MTG finance. The, <laughs> you know, it's this kind of casual focused content that dominates uh, the consumption patterns of your average magic player these days. And so, you know, these metas uh, are kind of like pings from deep in the ocean that don't aren't going to resonate out to drive sales uh, as strongly as they maybe once would have. Um, you know, news coming out of World Championships, um, you know, what's happening in Standard may have set off a bunch of cascades in, in prior years. Whereas this time we really only saw Search for Azkanta spike um, on the back that back of, you know, people seeing on camera just how powerful a repeatable tutor could be in a control deck once it had, you know, scried its way into threshold or whatever. Well, that's
1: an interesting take on the, the competitive viewing and and competitive versus casual um i do i don't think you're you're wrong i do think that there's an additional wrinkle that it might have something to do with the world's format i feel like a lot of people watch competitive magic uh to see the cool new things to see the decks to see the strategies to see the moments and pro tours work reason like gps gps have a lot going on but you don't know a lot of the players Pro tours have less less people, usually less variants in the decks type of thing. Um but you recognize everyone for the most part. The polish is a little higher. Uh you can trust the lists a little more because it's a pro tour rather than a GP. Uh, but then the world goes the too far, right? Like you're down to so few people. We basically only saw like four decks at this event, right? It was like red. Teamer energy, four color energy, assault eye energy, maybe uh, blue black control. Like there's like basically three to four archetypes. So if you tune in day one and you watch them battle for a couple rounds and you realize they're all playing the same deck, like, Nobody wants to watch limited, right? Like only psychopaths enjoy watching limited. It is completely unwatchable. Even people who love it don't really generally enjoy watching it. And if you came to watch standard, uh, you saw everything that it had to offer within like four rounds, um, unless you were super interested in the interplay of the decks, which again, some people are, but like the novelty and and the differences keep it interesting. And there wasn't really a lot of that. Uh, So then the only thing left is, like, rooting for players or teams, which Magic hasn't really gotten there in the way that other esports or normal sports have. You know, you can look at, like, League and people get jazzed about Cloud9 or Enemy or whoever their team is. Um, And that level of, of loyalty doesn't exist here at this point. So I guess... I don't think you're wrong that magic, a huge part of magic consumption is at the casual level in terms of media, but I do think world is particularly poorly positioned to capture people who want to watch competitive magic. I did not watch at all, but I will turn into the pro tour for parts of it because that is much more interesting for what I want to see.
0: I mean, I think the Pro tour has some of the same problems. Um, The thing is that they're trying to use these events to showcase the formats they consider core. So they want you to see drafting, and they want you to see standard, because those are the formats they want you to play at your local FNM. And the problem is that by combining both in the same event, it muddles the narrative. When you've got to watch those limited rounds after the draft, it's much harder to tune into what's happening on board. Um, They have not solved the... You know how do we show a game of magic on camera? Problem. In fact, they're still struggling with basic things like lighting and mm-hmm. glare on cards, which is amazing to me. I mean, by this point, they should have a custom rig set up that provides like excellent lighting for over table scenarios. Do you, did you and, think that the contractor? Uh, yes, but I also like. I also feel like they it at some point they should have dedicated some R and D into the into creating a custom lighting rig that solves all these problems yeah i mean it i wasn't excusing them i was just wondering if that if you thought that it was a contractor i mean i've got i, I know what the solution is but that's a discussion for another day um <laughs> they need to move into light tables and in, in a hurry but anyway so the the deal is that if they were smart about constructing this content, they would just show us back-to-back-to-back-to-back drafts, right, during the limited portion. So for that three and a half hours or four hours or whatever, just show us, like, eight different players' drafts. Like, we'll watch that. That content is is heavily watched on YouTube. I watch, you know, a draft a night before bed kind of thing. Like, if lsV is really? doing some late-night late streaming or something, yeah, sure. I'm lying on the couch, drifting off. I'll put on, like, you know... Caleb or, or LSV or Todd or somebody and and watch them go through a draft. I find the analysis of what stuff to pick, especially if I haven't been playing the format a lot, um, engaging because it's it's useful on getting up to speed. Um, now, wait, hold on. I'm. Curious. But you're right. I'm just are you watching? Are you watching just the picks, or do you watch them play too? I, I rarely watch them play, and that's okay, the so thing. You go right, to the like watching itself. limited. Is, sometimes I'll watch like if. Like LSV is a great example of a streamer who doesn't stream that often, but when he does, if he puts together a particularly spicy brew, like last night, he had an incredible control deck put together for color control in in draft. And that was a fantastic set of matches,
1: <laughs> but okay. that's
0: not, that's not everybody's draft. So it's, it's not, I'm certainly less interested in the games than I am in the drafts. And I think everybody feels that way or the large majority of players. And I think that they should consider restructuring what they, what they show off as a result. Um, now, that being said, I think the real issue is that you're mixing formats, because in mixing limited and standard, you're showing off the things you want to show off, but you're muddling the narrative in terms of driving home what the evolving meta looks like for a format. So, for instance, with the World Championship metagame coming into the tournament out of 24 people with 24 decks, you had 41% of the people on up Red or Treasure Red. You had uh, another 38% or so on either teamer Energy or the four-color version that was running Scarab God. And then you had five of those 24 players, so about 20%, show up with either blue-black control or Grixis control. So it was really kind of like a a three-deck meta with minor variations. And... But then there was no follow up coverage, really, like there's no article that they published throughout the weekend that told you which decks did best in standard, like they gave you the results, and you could go dig for that information. But to compile the next portion we're about to share with people, we had to go digging for that data ourselves, which means most people didn't because it would have been too much hassle. So for instance, three of there was only six decks that did six, two or better over eight rounds of standard, which is how many there were, they were doing three rounds of draft four rounds of standard each day. So seven rounds total. Um, uh, whereas at the Pro Tour, they do eight. So I thought that was a little weird. Um, and of the six that did 6-2 were better, we had, uh, Javier Dominguez and Eric Froelich on Ramen Up Red do six and two. And then we had three players on Teamer Energy or Four Color Energy. That was William Jensen, who of course won the tournament. Martin Mueller on four color energy and Sebastian Pazzo on teamer energy all did six and two. And then Kelvin Chu was the lone blue black control deck to do six and two. So during the coverage, I got the impression that blue black control was dominating. I mean, uh, they asked LSV what deck he would want to be on. And he said blue black. Um, but if you look at the six and two decks, it doesn't play out that way. Like teamer held its own remnant Red still right there. The treasure red deck. They tried to hold up as the, Hey, look at the new shiny deck. Um, <laughs> That was that was leveraging Wily Goblin and uh, Lannery Storm, um, you know, didn't didn't do didn't hit six and two. It wasn't that good of a deck for for the existing meta, and so I, I think you get these very muddled narratives. I guess is, is the summary. Um, all of these decks look like they have game. We're going to continue to see tweaks, but I think what we're not going to see heading into the Pro Tour is a brand new deck emerge. Um, there was a lot of money on, on the line for Worlds which me- makes the delay of the Pro Tour six weeks out from release a little awkward, right? Because normally you have the Star City tournaments that they can sandbag or not attend if they don't want to reveal tech. But for Worlds, a lot of these players tested with their teams, even if the teammates uh, weren't showing up for Worlds, and have already made the same kind of determinations you would expect them to make heading into the Pro Tour. So it's a, there's a very good chance that the Pro Tour after Worlds is going to um, reveal less interesting tech than almost any other Pro Tour.
1: Uh, that's possible. I do think in some of your comments earlier about how it's a very different metagame could make it so that like... Maybe the tokens deck is really poorly positioned for this um, for a variety of reasons, uh, but would be much better at the pro tour type of thing. So I, I agree that you're not going to see too like you're not going to see it's not going to be a completely fresh new format. We know that there's going to be energy. We know that there's going to be ramen red and we know that there's going to be control. But there might be some other stuff that sneaks out that is essentially not playable in a 16 or 24 person tournament, but
0: is playable in a
1: pro tour with 550 people.
0: I'm very curious to see if any of the major teams bring a new archetype to the table for that pro tour. My prediction is that you see a bunch of the tier two type decks, um, you know, uh come out of the woodwork things like anointed procession hidden stockpile based stuff the problem is that a lot of the like kind of like quirky decks out of the kaladesh block that you could be playing that are not energy related but artifact combo related um, are so easily injured by a braid right like the the card being so good against uh, aggressive strategies by doing three damage to a creature and having the side effect of killing uh, an artifact is kind of like when dramoka's command was in the format and made enchantments so bad
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's a it's an answer that might be a little too efficient. It's hard to say for sure. Uh, Not being a standard professional, but it certainly does seem um, a tad overbearing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could could also be the problem that
1: energy is just way too good.
0: So that's our take on the metagame this week. Um, let's move on to our topic of the week. We're gonna talk about the state of magic branding. Um mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast unveiled a new version of the Magic logo this week. Uh this is uh the last version of the logo we got was in 2015. Um, when we got the uh, mythic red uh, version of the logo that's lasted uh, up until now. Before that, uh, it was 16 years with the second version of the logo. This was the yellow Magic the Gathering with the red outline and the white The Gathering letters, um, which was a slight update to the original version of the logo that's still on the card backs that we had from 1993 to 1999. Um, what was your what were your impressions of the new logo that they revealed this week Travis well I'm going on record as saying
1: the original logo is still the best one <laughs> but that's because I love the old archaic eclectic character of uh, of magic um, the new one is I don't know it's fine it's very very twitch TV-ish very wants to be modern the the arrangement of the text, the gathering uh, is a little curious. I'm not sure. I love that. Uh, It looks like it's trying, almost trying to highlight the first three letters, just mag mag. I also hate that planeswalker symbol. And I really wish that it did not become like the logo of magic because it's, I think it's just garbage. Um, Other than that, I think it's, it's mostly fine. It will look at home on splash screens and product boxes and, Um, you know, on sponsorship lists and what have you, you know, it's not going to look out of place next to other logos, but I am not impressed with it.
0: So I give this logo like a six out of 10. Um, I find that the positioning, the balance of the logo is not well centered. Um, there's a definite pull on the eye off to the left side um, because they stacked the gathering off to the left, like you said, and the planeswalker icon is significantly taller than the rest of the logo, so the whole thing is left, uh, left focus, which is a little odd to me. Um, I don't mind the planeswalker icon. I think a, I think it's a reasonably good representation. Um, for the brand to hang the hat of the brand on the concept of planeswalkers. That is kind of what differentiates magic from just wizards and dragons in the classical D&D sense is that the, the planeswalkers have kind of a, a specific unique ability, the ability to transcend worlds um, that non-planeswalkers don't have um, and or can't achieve without artifact help. And the fact that the, the planeswalker icon um, refers to the five colors of magic is also interesting. Um, or or useful i find that the font they've selected is not going to stand the test of time this is a very unique font that has uh, a digital gaming uh, slant that i think is, and the problem there is that digital gaming moves pretty fast so In three to five years, the entire industry is going to be on to new styles uh, and motifs. They, you know, spend a lot of money with their ad agencies to uh, dream up new logos and branding and so forth for their their various properties. And you see a lot of uh, advancement. There's a lot of money in that industry, so you see it move pretty quick. Do you? Um, Whereas, you know,
1: do you think that that's part of their plan? Like they only imagine the shelf life of this as being
0: three years. Well, I think that they are, they are, you know, they said they made a lot of discussion in the article that they posted about why they did this, um, talking about how they, you know, wanted to uh, bring it up to speed, um, but still harken back to the like fundamentals of the game. But I think what's really happening here is this is them um, refocusing on digital. So this is them looking forward to a future where Magic's presence as a digital brand might be as important or more important than paper. Um, And we all need to be, you know, anybody who's holding, you know, vast quantities of paper magic, you know, both of us have, you know, in the tens of thousands um, need to be aware that there could be, you know, it's not going to be tomorrow or the next day or a year from now or three years from now. But there is a potential five to 10 years down the road where magic transitions to an almost entirely digital brand. Um, It solves a lot of problems, um, especially if it played out the way that I that I'm thinking it could. And um, all of that supports that they should at least be cognizant of of that potential path and put out d- um design branding logo elements accordingly. Now, you know, one of the things that I that <laughs> generated some furor on Twitter when I mentioned it was that I thought that they are I think that they start, are stopping too short here. Um, there are a bunch of other elements to the game that probably need to be updated. Um, one of them um is the, the subtext, The Gathering. What does that even refer to? <laughs>
1: well, it refers to what was supposed to be the original set name. Because <laughs> the next one was going to be uh, Magic Arabian Nights. And it had a different card back and everything, but it never got printed. Now it's, right. now it's you well, I mean, and the, your friends getting together.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, I think that if they could go back and do it again, it would just be called Magic. Yeah. Um, it's a much cleaner brand. Um, the gathering for those of us that were, that were raised in the 80s and or the 90s, it, it seems like they're talking about Highlander. Right. And <laughs> that association is not a fantastic. one. Well, I'm going to pause you
1: right there. I have no doubt that you make that association. I don't think that they are expecting most people to do that. I don't associate it with Highlander and I'm in my 30s.
0: I mean there can be only one I know of
1: Highlander ga- but I wasn't even aware that Gathering was tied to the Highlander property. Well like Highlander the Gathering. I, I that was
0: like one of the movies. Yeah, I didn't know that.
1: And I don't th- I mean there yeah. I don't so, think I mean, their audience really knows that either.
0: Regardless of that association, um the the brand is so much cleaner just as Magic Because as soon as you go to Magic the Gathering, then you got to explain to people what the gathering is. Mm -hmm. And there is no really great explanation. It's kind of an artifact of the original decisions Mm -hmm. made. And this is, if you're going to update the logo, you may as well update the name of the the game entirely to just Magic. It doesn't hurt anything else because if they're going to make this, you know, the other decision that we're going to (laughs) discuss, which is to keep the card backs the same, um, then you're already committed to having that out of lockstep with all of your other branding elements. Um, so their style guide now includes all this modern stuff and then a page where they go, yeah, but the card backs are completely out of sync. So they break all our own rules for how we represent the brand, but oh, well, so sorry, too bad. Um, so I think I would get rid of the gathering. Um, the other thing that I call in the question is the card backs. Like, the, there are many people who disagree with me. The vast majority I, I recognize. Um, there was a lot of discussion back and forth on my Twitter account this week on this topic, um, which basically boiled down to, you know, what Corbin piped up with was um, this makes it impossible for people to mix sets. I mean, as soon as you draw the line in the sand and say, we've got a new card back, now the card backs don't match across time and, you know, the game's going to implode. The thing is, mixed card backs are already in play in EDH, right? And the reason that works is because everybody plays with sleeves, And so people piped up with, well, no, there's lots of people that don't don't have deep budgets and they don't play with sleeves and such and such. Hold on,
1: just uh, for our listeners, point out what you mean when you say there are cards in EDH that have different backs.
0: Well, because people can play with EDH doesn't have any rule against playing with um, World Championship deck cards, which are gold backed. Um, or uh, silver border cards uh, from unsets that don't have different backs but have different borders that are banned in constructed play. Um, And so, and people play um, alters in EDH. um, People play, uh, what do you call it? uh, Proofs, artist proofs in EDH. Mm -hmm. Um, And in all constructed formats, standard, modern, legacy, most of EDH, I would guess 95% of players are playing with sleeves at this point. I mean, sleeves is a major industry and and an essential um, accessory if you're going to play the game. Now, are there of the 20 million players, how many of them are playing constructed? Well, we don't know that number exactly, but I think it's low single digit millions. So that means the vast majority of the casual occasional players may not have sleeves. So, are you totally screwing them over by like drawing a line in the sand at some point and changing the card backs? I would argue you're not. I think that the the easiest way to solve that is that for some period of time, call it two, three, four, five years, most of the products aimed at those people can come with sleeves. The reality is that sleeves are a profit uh, generator at LGSs and so forth because the margins on them are pretty good. But for wizards to buy them in large quantity and then include them in products and then uh, wrap their cost into the price of that product. So move a product from 1999 to 2099 or 1999 to 2199 or something um, to make sure that they can mix and match their cards from various eras is easy breezy slam dunk. And at LGSs, if you've got players who um, you know can't afford to have sleeves. And I find that pretty hard to believe. I mean, if you can afford a $50 standard deck, you can afford $4 to get a junky set of sleeves off the shelf and play with them all season. Um, the... You know, even if there's a player who you know, can't push it that extra step in their budget to get sleeves, you could be giving those away in exchange for uh, enhanced DCI number approvals uh, uh, tying into all of the marketing programs they're not running that they should be, where they're tracking the, the sales um, and uh, tournament activity for DCI players. Um, there's a lot of opportunities to like, give a necessary accessory away. And there's tons of precedent for this in other games where uh, accessories that are, you know, are not critical to the game are still expected to be included in the game, right? Like anybody who goes to a bowling alley and bowls and it's not <laughs> obviously that's not a lot of people these days. But, you know, those guys don't carry the balls in in their bare hands. They put them in a bowling ball bag um, and you could go on forever about the various things that you purchase to support the various other hobbies that you participate in. Um, so I don't think the the. The cardbacks being different is really a big issue. All right,
1: so, uh, you know, you said something a couple of minutes ago about magic eventually transferring away from paper, and you know, it could be a ten-year path or more. I, I pretty con, pretty vehemently disagree, but that's a discussion for another day. On the cardback thing, um, I think I think there's a couple things at play here. You definitely have a a volume of players who don't use sleeves that I feel like you might be underrepresenting. There are a lot of kids in the probably eight to maybe 14 or 15 range who got cards from an older brother that left them behind um, or older sister. Who kind of saw some kids at school with them and they picked up, uh, you know, one of those intro decks at the store for like free and they've gotten a couple packs for birthdays or what have you. You know, these are the people whose collection fits inside of a shoebox or smaller um, who don't own a lot of cards. Uh, and the idea of sleeves like seems cumbersome. They don't quite understand it. They don't really, un- they, you know, they, they don't know why they need them um, and the disposable nature of them might put them off too, right? Like you and I swapping out sleeves. We just don't play that much magic. So we don't wear the sleeves that fast either. And we don't have any problem replacing them. But people who do play more often who might play at lunch every day or something like that, um, could wear through those sleeves pretty quickly. Uh, and then they have to buy more of them. And if you've got parents who are footing the bill for this, uh, you know, they might not love that idea, whether or not, The cost of the sleeves should matter relative to the spending of magic Um, is a good question. Like, is the four dollars you'll spend on sleeves important if you're buying your kid four dollar booster packs every couple weeks? No. But will it make people stop and think about it? Yes. Um, Especially if it's like this isn't a hobby that the parent has compartmentalized as one that I will spend money on like I spend money on my son's soccer and his video games and blah 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 like I'm not spending a lot more magic on this other hobby. So there and even when I was in college we had thousands of cards and we consistently played them unsleeved. We only ever bought sleeves when we had uh when we spent more than $5 on a single card and we needed the deck uh, you know we wanted to protect it but for the most part we played unsleeved. Um so there's definitely a large percentage of people, there's just, they're just not visible you're never going to see, you're very rarely going to see those people in stores because those are, those people playing without sleeves are the ones who haven't made that transition. Even an FNM player has already made a pretty major jump from playing with only people they know to being willing to play with strangers. And for us, that's nothing. Um, and there's a lot of people who've made that jump, but I think there's a much deeper pool, you know, the 60 card casual crowd, the silent majority that hasn't made that jump. And those are the people who aren't using sleeves now. Having said all of that, the question is, would introducing a new card back impact that group's engagement with magic meaningfully? And basically, while I disagree with you on the number of people who play without sleeves, I also disagree with Corbin and some of the other people about how much of an impact it would have. I'm not sure it would really matter. I know that you would cut some small percentage of people away from the game if you introduced a new card back. But most of them, if they're 8, 10, 12 years old, aren't really going to care very much um, because it will only take, you know, a couple months to a year to completely replace their library with new cards, essentially. Um, Or they just won't care at all. Or, you know, some of them will who do care will just buy sleeves, you know, they'll suck it up and and plunk down a couple bucks and get sleeves and just use those. And um, so that they can play with their mixed cards if their friends complain. And, you know, if you pair this with an aggressive um, sleeve distribution at card stores to make it available for people um, that would help a lot too, to ease that transition. So I think there are a lot of people that play without sleeves still, but I don't think most of them would be turned off to the introduction, introduction of new card backs. Having said that, uh, I personally love the magic card backs and I'm, I'm holding one in my hand right now so I could talk about it while I look at it. I don't think they're as dated as, as James, you might, um, are you know, if you really stop and examine it, you can see the age, you know, the light Brown backing behind the magic text and the color symbols and, um, the block that says text master certainly does not look modern. Um, and maybe I have just become so used to it that I don't really think about it. I do really like the fact that you know the card back kind of shows that it's not it. It gives it a sense of permanence um, because it's clearly not a slave to modern design trends. Where if I look at the back of other card games, to me they feel impermanent or fleeting because it feels so trendy. Uh, Whereas this is like, wow, this has been around for a while. Like they don't mess with this. Um, There's a there's a a legacy to this item in my hand, right? There's age, there's weight. Uh, But you know what? It's really hard, I think, to get a good it's frankly to get a good opinion out of any of us on the magic card backs just because we are so used to it. But so my to wrap up my thoughts here, it's a lot of people don't use sleeves, I think more than you may initially realize. But B, I think it matters less than a lot of other people think that it does.
0: Yeah, so I fully recognize that I think the majority of players, total players don't leave sleeves. Lose, use slave, sleeves, but it's important to recognize that <laughs> most of them <laughs> don't <important>. use slaves <laughs> yeah they don't have slaves and they also don't use sleeves um but it's also important to recognize that despite the fact that like let's call it 60 to 70 percent of people don't use sleeves those are the people that aren't spending money i mean those are the, the reason they don't lose use sleeves is because they don't even make it into fnm to play in a standard tournament um, anybody that drafts or plays standard has sleeves like I mean, mm-hmm. not all of them, but, like, the vast majority. Um, and the ones that don't, you can make it part of a marketing program to give away the sleeves. I mean, Wizards could put out a product that was, like, 300 sleeves for $9.99 as part of this transition and just leave it on shelves for years. And that would be a very popular product if they were, like, really nice sleeves. And... Um, you know anytime somebody complained to an lgs owner they would just point at that product and i mean if you're serious about the game that's that's a a no-brainer in terms of people that are playing casually at their kitchen table wanting to mix card backs they buy a new product the card backs don't match if the product was just random booster packs it includes a tip card that they can go to their local look up their lgs on on the dci website or whatever and go in to get their sleeves like they can even offer them a free pack of sleeves to go to an lgs the value of transitioning a kitchen table casual to an LGS regular is so much that this kind of program would be a slam dunk. It's a no-brainer completely. But there's more to this. You can I mean I clearly recognize the hassle and the the challenge of the game's culture that is involved in in challenging the card back. And I'm not like super passionate that they must change the card back. I like the old card backs too. I've been playing with them for 25 years. Um, I'm certainly not in a rush to see them change for my personal gain. Um, and there's no financial angle here that <laughs> if somebody's trying to figure out the conspiracy theory, there, there's no reason I'm pushing this that is related to you know assets or holdings. Um, in fact, I think it probably hurts MTG Finance more than it would help and explain that in a second. Um, so why am I Why do I think this would be a good idea? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you can start tackling counterfeits by changing the card stock and do all sorts of interesting things, like put uh, RFID chips in the cards on the go forward. The technology is going to get to the point where you can manufacture the cards in a different way that's much harder to um, counterfeit and that provides benefits like logging the card's ownership to the owner. And that might not be super relevant today based on what printing presses are doing in 2017. But when you get to like 2023, um, that technology is going to be significantly more advanced. Now, one of the things you want to avoid is that the cards would be different weights that would, they would, they would be detectable as old versus new in the card sleeves. All of that would have to be addressed. There's no doubt. Um, but it's, those are solvable problems. Um, and there's a massive benefit. Um, On the marketing side, I think what most people are underestimating that are involved in this conversation because they're not branding professionals is that when you have a $350 million a year brand, if you make the card backs 10% more attractive so that subliminally people latch onto the brand 20% faster or something and commit to playing the game um, uh, to a greater degree because they relate to the style of it, they like the cool they without ever putting verbalizing it or even having conscious thought about it, that they relate to the product better. And this is the kind of stuff that I deal with day in, day out and have been for 20 years that I think that people underestimated in the Twitter conversation. Um, there's a reason that brands like even the most like recognizable brands in the world, like Coca-Cola, are constantly employing new ad agencies to take s- fresh swipes at their brand and their logo and their colors and they're experimenting with different different font faces with tweaks here, tweaks there, that nothing is sacred. I mean, this is like par for the course in the ad industry to challenge a logo in the face of shifting demographics or shifting product mix. Um, this is just normal stuff. The fact that uh, Wizards has done it as infrequently as they have. I mean, there was a version of the logo that lasted 16 years is, uh, is reflective of... Um, faults on the part of their marketing team more than it is that they, that uh, proof that they should not change it. Um, I've also alluded to this concept of, you know, DCI programs being upgraded so that you could use this whole process of shifting card backs to bring people into LGSs and, and so forth. There's tremendous benefits potentially down that road as well. The other thing um, that's particularly interesting is that... Um, you can drive sales and this is a brand that has flatline single digit growth remember you can drive sales by changing the the card back because there's going to be a it it will be the latest the sky is falling i I mean i can just picture the twitter storm if people did what i said
1: um oh man would it be the best one that we've seen it it would be one of like what would be what would have been better up to this point it's
0: hard to say it's hard to imagine. yeah so i mean (laughs) people would freak out and then they would come out and they, they could announce, for instance, that a standard format was just was not going to mix the backs. um, Or they could allow it to mix the backs, and that would only last a year. They could give away free sleeves as a result. If you participate in a standard league this season at your FNM, you get free sleeves. Like That's just a bonus. Why not? Um, mm-hmm. Draft, it doesn't matter, because all the cards would be from, from the new back sets. Casual decks, you now are basically forced to purchase sleeves. But if you make the sleeves cheaper and, and readily available, then again, it's not a problem. And you can include reference cards to, you know, via these marketing programs to get people to get the sleeve so they, they can mix the cards. So if some kid, you know, has a bunch of new cards and wants to buy five old cards, well, one of the things you can do is announce a bunch of reprint sets, right? Like you can take a bunch of cards that are played heavily in casual circles, like casual masters or whatever, and you can print the hell out of them so that they have the new backs. I mean, this, is, this mm-hmm. becomes a, a vehicle for sales. Now, on the balance, does this oh, yeah. does this mean that you absolutely should do this slam dunk? No, not at all. There's a reason they chose to point out in their article that they're not doing it. It's risky. And uh, if one thing we've seen from wizards over the years, they do not love risk. They hate being wrong in public. And this is one of the things where they could get the most amount of egg on their face all at once that is uh, conceivable. So I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, um, but I wish it would because I've been obsessed with the card stock and the card backs for Final Fantasy's trading card game this year. I wish my Magic cards felt um, as good as those cards do. And I, th- I think that they can. this is a solvable problem.
1: I I, I do agree with you that If they decided to go that route, they can definitely implement a variety of programs to uh, encourage and facilitate the transition. Um, You know, you can put a slip in every pack. Uh, you know that you can trade in for a free couple of sleeves at your store, you know type of thing. Uh, you can put them in the newest casual product. You can time the release with you know a casual set with lots of sixty card casual reprints that give the cards new backs. You can put out. Um, I don't know if this would be a wise idea. Someone would have to think through this a little bit more. But you could put out uh, put out the equivalent of checklist cards where it's the new backing with a blank front so that you can, you know, write your own card into it. If you absolutely have positively have these old cards, like, yeah, I guess you would kind of need something like that for reserve list cards anyways. Um, so things of that nature, uh, I, you know, I also kind of wonder and keep in mind by the way that, you know, we've had checklist cards for a while, which got rid of the magic back entirely. So we've kind of already disrupted this a little bit. That was a really big deal and has basically not mattered. I don't think. Um, and that's easy to forget about it. It also kind of makes you wonder if they would use the opportunity to not only change the card back, but say we are no longer limited to one like uh, go to the original idea of magic, which was different card backs for different sets, um, which was what magic was intended to do. Arabian nights had a different card back that just didn't happen to get printed. But, um, Then you'd essentially have to use sleeves, right? Like everyone would always have to use something that covered up the back of the card. Uh, I I still don't think that that's necessarily the right idea, but it would give them an opportunity to go down that route if they so wanted, at least.
0: So, you know, it's another concept that they haven't done yet that I think is going to happen at some point um, Mm -hmm. is flip cards where you have the option. They're basically they're not actually a card that turns into a different like that is modal itself. They are two different cards. One does not turn into the other, but during sideboarding mm. you can flip it, <laughs> right? So like it's would... it starts as like a three-three for two or whatever, and you can flip it into a five-five hexproof for five or something. Like mm. it's a solid concept, right? They're going to get there at some point. And if sleeves are um, official, they're an official accessory for the game, which I think is fine uh, in the in the mid to long term. Then. There's all sorts of possibilities that open up in terms of what you can do.
1: Anyway Imagine Imagine uh the card starts out as like uh a one mana two two and then the backside is like a two two four five or whatever and it says you can turn this card over during sideboarding if you won the prior game or whatever. lost the prior game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Like it changes based on how you played the match. You could put that in, like, a conspiracy product.
0: And since this is a finance cast, we should probably talk about what the financial implications would likely be here. I think what happens is you end up having, like, a transitionary period where people are still buying new and old cards. And then five years down the road, you announce some kind of modern replacement format that's new backs only. And you get another format that's, like, old school, but it's called old backs. And <laughs> and then there's probably some cards that... Um, that are preferred in one or the other. I mean, the whole point here would be that the new backs would have to be stunning, right? Like, so you're going to end up with some newer players that just prefer new backs and and demand for old uh, old back cards and certain sets would just drop through the floor. Um, but they don't care because that, that hurts vendors to some extent in the long term on that older inventory, but they would probably get a solid transitionary period to get out of it. And then again, opens the door to resell those cards with fresh backs, which is a huge sales booster.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Be, just getting to resell cards again would be a big advantage. Um, it's, uh, you, I guess, I guess the another financial impact is uh, you'd have a lot of people who sold out of their collections. So you, if you see the announcement of changing backs, be prepared to scoop up a ton of cards that people are going <laughs> to ditch that you can uh, profit on.
0: And for anybody invested enough to have a ton of cards, what a silly reason to quit! Like, yeah. Which of us that has that that has en- enough of a collection to be worth selling doesn't have a shit ton of f- sleeves? I mean, I must have four thousand sleeves in the house. Every time I buy a spec, I get sent a sleeve. I always take them out of those sleeves and put them into into penny sleeves. So, I mean, who I, I could probably provide sleeves for every kid within fifty miles that doesn't have them. Right, right, and I
1: mean, the only time I have played without sleeves in probably the last decade is when i'm drafting in which case it doesn't matter so sure all right but yes let's go ahead and wrap things up uh james where can our listeners
0: find you you guys can find me as per usual on at (laughs) mtgcritic.com sorry let me try that again (sighs) you guys can find me on twitter at mtgcritic as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com
1: And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I I write every Monday for MTG Price with the Watchtower series. I also do the Cartel Aristocrats webcast. And if you enjoy playing magic, check out scry.land. Find magic in your area.
0: Also, like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
1: All right. Well, that brings episode 89 to a conclusion. James, I, I thought we had an excellent conversation tonight, and I
0: will see you next week. Uh, I'd like to do a shout-out to our pro traders. Let them know that we are redesigning several key pages on the site right now. If you have functionality um, requests, things that have been bugging you, stuff that's broken, or things that you would love to have included on MTG Price, uh, there is a fresh round of development going on this fall, and I would be happy to take those notes from you, uh, preferably through Twitter DM. Thanks very much, and have a great night.